John has been an uh, encouraging study for, for me and I think for us as a church as well. We've come to this great narrative where Jesus uses imagery and, and illustrations that are not so familiar with us. Now, it may be familiar in the sense of we've heard people preach on this and, and they've tried to explain it for us, but it's not familiar in the sense of we look outside and see a bunch of shepherds and sheep and stuff like that. In fact, I was uh, reminded this morning that when Mary and I were first married, we, we were given a dog outside of Walmart, a puppy. Some people had a box of puppies and gave us one, and we took it home with us and let my nephew play with it all day long. And in three days, the dog died. And I was uh, just amazed at my inability to care for animals. You may be like me and come to a passage like this and say, I have no idea what is going on in this situation of shepherd and sheep, but the principle of what Jesus is teaching us is clear. The meaning is powerful and I think effective in our lives. It was familiar to them. Um, over and over, uh, Jesus uses illustrations of shepherding and sheep and things like that would have been easy for them to grab and understand. In fact, if you look all the way back in the Old Testament, shepherds and sheep are just strung all throughout it, so it's hard to open your Bible without coming across this idea of someone shepherding sheep. Uh, and so it is uh, something you as well may be familiar for that very reason. Abel was the first shepherd, and then you, the patriarchs, and then, of course, King David being that famous shepherd started out his career fighting off lions and bears before he ever met the giant keeping his father's sheep, and so on. One of the most beautiful passages we'll look at in just a moment is when God steps in and relates this reality of shepherd and sheep and this relationship between him and his, his fellowship or his, his interaction with his own people, the nation of Israel, and we'll see it beyond that, all of his people, even in our passage, those that are not of this particular Fold, God speaks to us in ways that we can understand as a shepherd with his sheep. So we'll look at this in two parts this morning. I won't cover the whole thing of Jesus being the good shepherd, but I will stop in verse number 10. Uh, and then we'll look at the second part of this uh, next week, Lord willing. So first, let's look at the familiar image Jesus uses in the first five verses here, and then we'll flesh this out a little bit and we'll look at uh, we'll look at Jesus declaration I am the door of the sheep well again this is familiar to the people in the area where Jesus was living but what is what is unique to consider is the context or at least the the atmosphere Jesus spoke these words he's not speaking to his disciples who are sitting at his feet eager to hear another sermon or give us another talk on God and his faithfulness to us. He's, he's really not just kind of taking a moment to speak to the crowds. This is really, first of all, a sharp rebuttal or a sharp rebuke against the Pharisees. And while we may look at this as a very devotional section of Scripture, it is a heated rebuke against the leaders of his day the nation of Israel and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and all the others that go in that, that lot. 
In fact, as he stands up and he speaks about this, he is, he is calling to mind what had already taken place in John chapter number 9. Now, some of you were here with us for that. Some of you were not. So let me just recap with you. Jesus heals a man that is born blind. And as he goes in, the Pharisees call him to task. What happened to you? And so he tells them, Jesus healed me. He told me what to do. And he, he gave me my sight. And so they didn't believe he was blind. They asked his parents. His parents say, no, he's blind. Ask him the rest of it. We're, we don't know what to do with you guys. And and so they bring him back in. And as he testifies to them what Jesus did, here's a man who has been healed miraculously by God. What do they do? The leaders of the people, they kick him out. They excommunicate him. And they kick him out of the synagogue and really out of fellowship uh, with this area, which would be even more heightened by the time John wrote this gospel. In fact, at the end of the first century, some of the Pharisees were basically pronouncing condemnation on anyone who was one of the Nazarites or one who would follow after this Jesus. May they be shut out of the kingdom forever. Uh, and you can find that in Study that out yourself. So all of this has taken place, and Jesus says at the end of chapter number 9, look at it with me. Verse 39, he says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him, is almost it's like that's a great place to end the chapter. The dialogue, let's, let's move on to the next scene, and yet... Yet it's like you have that next step. They just can't leave well enough alone. So some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we, you say we see, our guilt remains. Your guilt remains. Basically pronouncing their own spiritual blindness. Because they are self-righteous, because they feel and perceive themselves to be right with God and self-sufficient and good standing with God, Jesus is saying, I can offer nothing for you except for the remark that you are blind. You cannot even see your own needs. That's the judgment that came into the world. And so chapter number 10, he picks up in this great declaration of of woe in some sense to these thieves and robbers at the end of verse number one. That's a strong statement to make. I wonder if the Pharisees got it. You know, he's preaching this great story of the shepherd and the sheep, and he speaks about robbers and thieves. And I wonder if they were sitting there thinking, I wonder if he's speaking about me. I don't know the answer to that, but we do know in Matthew 23 that Jesus unveils the wickedness of the scribes and Pharisees that existed in his day. In fact, with no need to turn there, I'll just highlight a few of the things that Jesus mentions in Matthew 23 out of those several woes, I think seven or eight of those woes on the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, the, the chief being found in verse number 13 when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in you imagine what just happened here is a blind man who has been healed and who has confessed that jesus is from god so instead of welcoming him into the fellowship of 
of the children of Israel, of the nation, of, of the worship of God, they shut him out. Anyone who believes in Jesus or follows him will be excommunicated. And Jesus says, this is your pattern. You will not believe yourselves and you will condemn and keep out any who would believe. In fact, he goes on with a very disturbing list of offenses as they devour widows' houses. They boast in their traditions. In fact, in one point, he says you're tithing of the the weeds that grow up in your garden, the very smallest of herbs, you're tithing tithing of them while you leave off the weighty matters of the law, which is compassion and love and care for one another. They are filled with dead men's bones, and over and over they are revealed to be against God and under the judgment of God. In fact, he says, in one sense, you will travel land and sea to make twice fold the children of hell. Your converts, you're bringing into condemnation. And there's a contrast here that he's speaking to us in chapter number 10 of John of those who are coming like that, those who are serving like that, the leaders of the day, thieves and robbers, those who seek to destroy in their self-seeking nature, their, their boasting of themselves, whether it's teaching or their, the burdens that they're putting on people. He says, nothing that you do is safe. You are destructive. You have no true right to the people of God and to the sheep of God. That's a pretty heavy indictment, isn't it? But it's not unfamiliar if you know your Old Testament. In fact, you go back to Ezekiel, if you have your page open there, turn back to Ezekiel chapter number 34. And God's speaking to the leaders, and this would be the leaders of Ezekiel's day, those over the nation of Israel, uh, seen in leadership. And he begins chapter number 34 with a rebuke against them in verse number Two, he says, they have been feeding themselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and you close yourself with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The stray you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. I think there's a clear connection if you see the rebuke that Jesus has against the leaders of his day to what he's saying here. This is how you've interacted in your position when you were supposed to be caring for the sheep of God, caring for the people of God. You have been abusing them. And so what does God do in a situation like this? And he gives us the answer to that in 11 and 12. Look at it with me. He says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, for when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And he goes through this long list of how he will care for them and how he will search them out. And in fact, verse 15 He says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind 
the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy and I will feed them in justice. What is he saying? Well, he's saying to a people who have been abused by their shepherds, who have not been brought and cared for as God has intended, he's saying, I will step down and I will care and tend to my own sheep. I will bring them out and I will bind them. I will search them out and I will care for them. That's something of the attitude I think that we have when we come to John chapter number 10 as Jesus steps out and speaks about the relationship of shepherd and sheep. But not only will God be their shepherd, we see he will appoint them in Ezekiel a new shepherd. Notice verse number 23 He says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now, is he setting David literally over them? Well, no, he's speaking about the Davidic covenant. I will set over the greater David uh, over them to be their shepherd, and he will feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord. I am spoken. So when Jesus is speaking, Stepping into chapter number 10 here, he's stepping into the reality the Messiah will come as an appointed shepherd by God to care and bring back the wayward and the straying sheep. And Jesus' declaration, if anything, I think is a declaration of his own uh, right, his ownership, his belonging to the fold. Notice back in John 10 with me. He says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And basically what he's giving us the image is that the porter who keeps the door watching all of these different sheep in one, in one kind of pen, when the rightful shepherd of the sheep comes, he comes through the door. He doesn't climb over the wall to get his sheep out. That would be counterintuitive but because the sheep belong to him he has all right and authority to come and get his sheep out and jesus is that rightful shepherd in fact he goes on and says and as we will see next week i am the good shepherd in chapter number 11 and so we see in this illustration jesus is that appointed shepherd who has right to care for the people or the flock of god but notice the intimacy that is spoken of here in these next few verses, beginning in verse number three, well, the gatekeeper will open, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger will they not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. And so we see in that relationship between Christ and his people or God's shepherd and God's sheep is an intimate relationship. In fact, you see that in the language of him, the sheep hear his voice and he calls them all by name. Now, many of you who've done background studies on this or heard sermons on this probably know that sheep in those days were not they weren't gathered together with a sheepdog biting at them or somebody um, pushing them along the way. They're not driven like cattle, but they were led by the voice of their shepherd. He would call them whatever 
He would call them whatever sounds. He would train them to understand, and they would know him by his voice, by the, his tone and by his, the, the things that he spoke. And here is the idea that Jesus is going into Israel, this larger fold, and he's calling out his sheep among apostate Israel. He's calling them to himself, and the sheep follow him because the sheep know him. They hear his voice. It is a reminder to us that even today Christ speaks to us and leads us along through his word, through his voice. Just thinking as a reminder to my own self and those who teach and elders in our church or anybody aspiring to the office of an elder, if you would guide and lead the people of God, God's flock, then use God's word, use the voice of the shepherd, and that is his, his word that's preserved for us. Because he knows them and he calls them all by name. Now some, some commentators will say what is going on here is he has neat little nicknames for all of his sheep or for, for the most part, you know, long ears or short tail or whatever the case may be. Uh, you can probably come up with your own. But nevertheless, you see this intimate relationship of Christ and his people. Knows them and calls them all by name. And you think about living in a world with billions of people and being in a room filled with strangers and yet knowing that before our Heavenly Father, you're never a stranger. You may be feel isolated from your family by, by geographic location or, or just maybe the situation you're in in life or no one knows exactly where you're at, but the Bible tells us he knows us and calls us by name. You're not forgotten or lost. He gathers in his own and calls them all by name. But notice the sheep's response and they hear him and he leads them. He goes before them. He doesn't wait for danger, danger to take the first few and, and go on. You remember Jacob, when he was taking all of his family into, back to the land there, and he was under the threat of Esau, and what did he do? He put his family in front of him, and he was in the rear. Not so with Jesus. He faces the danger head on, we'll see, even next week as he gives his life for his sheep, he leads his sheep along. And it says he gives us that great promise. Verse number five, a stranger will, they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of a stranger's. Now there is a familiar and beautiful image given to us. And a lot of this is fleshed out in, in much of the rest of the chapter. And it almost begs the question, while the Pharisees are displaying what Jesus already said, and that is, basically, you're blind and you can't see. And so when Jesus teaches them something, they, they pretty much say amen to that. We don't understand what you're saying. The reason they don't understand what he's saying is because they have not the Spirit of God and they do not believe in the Son of God. And so in verse number 7, he says he elaborates uh, what seems to be in a different direction. It's kind of odd. He speaks about a shepherd and sheep. And in verse number 11. Almost is like he goes right into that same theme. But he, he stops for a moment. And, and he speaks about this great I am statement. In verse number 7. I am the door. And again in verse number 9. I am the door. Why does he do that? 
I'm asking you that. It's a rhetorical question. I don't suppose you'll answer me. Maybe you will give me an answer later. I'm fine with that. But I think there's something in this to, to answer the question. That beautiful care that God gives with his people, Christ has for his sheep. How do I get that? How do I have that kind of confidence? How can I have a promise like that? How can I have a shepherd like that? How can I have that kind of reality or that kind of confidence? I mean, think about this beautiful metaphor and all what it means to us. And then in verse number 7, he, he unfolds. It's not just wonderful news. This is how you're going to get it. This is how this can be yours. Remember... <clears throat> Speaking, uh, I had not surrendered to preach uh, very long when a, a very zealous uh, Georgia missionary uh, to prisoners. I mean, you add all these these things in there, and it's just, uh, he was definitely a, an interesting and encouraging fellow. And he told me one day, he asked me if I ever read this book, and I, I didn't tell him honestly, I've never read a book, um, probably one at that time. And he says, you've got to get this book. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. The title of it's left my mind. But he says, it will change your life. And anybody says anything that is that wonderful and that powerful, what do you do? Well, we didn't have Amazon then. And I didn't know where a Christian bookstore was, so I didn't buy it. So maybe I should now and maybe get my life changed. I think that's what we see here. Jesus answering the question of this wonderful reality between God and his sheep. And there in answering that, he sets for us how we might have that great hope and confidence. It is not, it's not just a detour or, or rabbit trail Jesus is chasing down. He's expanding the image of shepherd and sheep. It, it is a, a shift to some degree, but it is a, a glorious reminder that not only is this true practically or theologically or, or in some discussion that we talk about Christianity and facts and, and all that interesting debate, this is a promise, this is a, a hope, a, a joy that is meant to be embraced and meant to be beheld by the reader. In fact, we know that to be true in Psalms 23, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why is it so wonderful? Because it doesn't say, I am a sheep and I shall not want. That's not the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm is that close, intimate relationship that God is possessive, my shepherd, and I am his sheep. And because of that relationship, I shall not want. And I think this is the thing that's being pressed upon us here in verses 7 through 10. So let's look at it together. From shepherd to door, entrance into the fold of God. Verse 7 and 8, let's read that. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? But Jesus is not saying that every person got his sin along the way is a thief and a robber. Of course, there was Moses and the prophets and other people who came at the bid of God to gather God's people under this kind of under covenant fellowship and faithfulness. And, and God had sent continually the prophets day and night and the nation tended to not like that and killed them all for the most part, quite a bit of them. So he's not saying that. 
he's again pointing his finger to the leaders of his day. And not just the leaders of his day. We can expand that a little bit. Anyone who is self-seeking, anyone who is coming to draw people to themselves and the flock of God to themselves, the false teachers and the false teachers of our day, rulers who claim to be sent from God and not sent from God, he says, they are all have this same characteristic. They are thieves and robbers. That's not a very flattering term, is it? It speaks, two, one, to the subtlety of what is going on. So a thief doesn't steal in broad daylight. They tend to do that at nighttime, don't they? When you got your, when you got your back turned or when you leave your keys in the car like we all do up here. You get the point. False teaching sometimes comes that way. It's the subtlety of drawing us away from attention to God to maybe some minute details somewhere hidden unearthed you need to unearth it it takes 40 hours to kind of come to some point of what they're saying at the end you come to the reality that they lead you away from christ and trust in yourself or in them that's usually the motto of a false teacher anyway come and look to me you'll never get that but you can be impressed that i did you guys are looking at me like you don't know what i'm talking about but that's the way it is on tv isn't it as people set themselves in their their television show and they preach to you their gospel and their version of the gospel as, as having arrived, as being a success story. And, and you know somewhere deep down you'll never get there, but you can follow along and be impressed and say, I'm following them. At least they made it. Somebody made it out of one of us. And they are destructive. They use all the words of Christianity, all the words that we're affectionate towards and all the words that we're familiar with. And yet in the midst of it, if you look at it, if you... Through the power of the Spirit of God and through the lens of the Word of God, you realize they're not leading you to the shepherd. They lead you away from the shepherd. They're a thief. Subtly, yet soundly seeking to destroy the sheep. And then there's those robbers, which you could translate this as mercenary. They don't care whether it's in secret or not. They're just blatantly do their thing and they're blatantly causing damage. Both in the case of the scribes and Pharisees as Jesus rebukes them. So what is he telling us? We see he's going against the thieves and robbers that he is sent from God to gather God's sheep together. Now as this door and belonging to the sheepfold, as far as it goes, we could use other languages the other gospels use, and that is how do we become members of the kingdom of God? How do we gain entrance into God's kingdom? in God's family. And, and so the Bible uses multiple illustrations to kind of lay out for us what Jesus is saying. And here he's just simply saying in, in God's fold. And he's saying, how do, we, how do we have that great promise that he will be our God and we'll be his people? So Jesus answers that by saying plainly and unashamedly, I am the door. Twice, I am the door. If we're asking how... How do we enter in? How are we a part of this? How can we claim this? Then and the answer is this. I am the door. You have to come through me. Now the door can oftentimes be referred to as the shepherd himself as he sits in the opening of the rock wall that he's built, kind of a corral for his sheep that they would stay in and and they tell us sometimes the shepherd would sit down in front of that door and, 
he would be the gate himself, and so he would have to move in order the sheep to come in and sheep to come out. Other people tell us, don't take this farther than you ought to take it. Whether or not you think of it that way, Jesus is explicitly saying that he is the door. Exclusively. And that is very counterculture to where we live in. We like options, don't we? I mean, you like options, I like options. We go get ice cream, we stand there for 20 minutes because we have so many options in front of us. We don't know what we want. We want this, we had this last week. We like options, and the same thing is true with our religious experience. We want to be able to control, to pick and choose a little bit, and the world kind of puts us together in this sort of collaboration of religious mess coming together and say, well, it's all going to work out somehow. We're all valid in some way, and so let's just not press the issue too much. And yet the Bible does not give us that kind of religion. In fact, Jesus says he is the only door by which anyone might be granted access into salvation. Is that true? Jesus is the only way. And I'm speaking to you and you're here on a Sunday morning. It's hot and, and so you're, you're enduring. And so I would assume many of you would say, this is what I heard all my life. I truly believe that. And yet how counterculture it is. And yet let me just remind you of a few of the words of Jesus. And this may be a reminder to some of you, may be new to others of you this morning. But Jesus says in Matthew seven thirteen through 14, enter by the what? narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are fewer. jesus words are sharp against collective pull of our day but they're not cruel cruelty would be lying to us or saying something that the rest of the bible disagree with They are instructive, they are corrective against the mess that is taught in our world, but they are not recklessly thrown out just because Jesus is trying to fit all of his word count into his sermon. Those of you who have ever had to write a paper, you will know the the dread of having to have a certain amount of words in one paper. So you just start making stuff up. Jesus is not doing that. Dogmatically, And yet, truthfully, he tells us that the gate is narrow and the way is narrow that leads to life. In fact, this is the very message that his apostles preached in the book of Acts. Uh, Peter's standing up after a man has been healed. He says, by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Don't you like that? Don't get too dicey with him, Peter. Just kind of back off a little bit. And he doesn't do that. He says, you crucified him. God raised from the dead. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Again, you see that exclusive nature. Chapter 10 of Acts, he says this. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God. This one who has been appointed by God is naturally Jesus himself. As judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, that is Jesus, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sin. So you say, I got it, I got it. 
gospel. Let me give you a few more just to make sure. Chapter 17, Paul's standing before the, the heathen in Greece, and he says this in Athens, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. What's his name? That's, we're tracking with that, aren't we? Amen. Not your parents, not your grandparents, not a judge in this society, not a judge in this world, not a, not a leader in this world. God has appointed a judge. And he will call everyone. He has fixed a day where he will call everyone and he will judge everyone, the world in righteousness. And he will do it through this man he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, in case you're just wondering who that might be, he raising him from the dead. Now, who did God raise from the dead? Jesus. Of course, Hebrews reminds us that he appointed him heir of all things, to whom he also he made the world and book of Revelation. will be worshiping God because he is worthy to take the scroll, the only one under heaven and in earth and all of creation, who is worthy to take the scroll and break the seals and execute the judgment of God. And his name is Jesus. Over and over, the Bible reminds us that no one else has been given this great honor. No one else has been set before us such an absolute way to say that life and death hang in the balance of what you do with him. Love or hated, he is not ignored and will not be ignored. Now, the truth is, many religious leaders in our day promise life, they promise salvation. As what we said, people draw men to themselves, but at the end, God has only provided one Savior. One Savior. And His name is Jesus. Though we've only just skimmed a glimpse of the biblical record of that reality, we have to answer the word, is it exclusive? Yes. But it is hopeful because there is a door of salvation. Because we're not guessing, well, maybe this will work and maybe that will work. Maybe this religion will work and maybe that religion will work. Maybe this experience will work or maybe that experience will work. We'll just kind of keep playing around until we come up with something that will work. We won't know what will work until we get to heaven and see God face to face. God has not left us in the dark. He has sent us a deliverer. He has sent us a a savior he has sent us a door uh, that that swings open to the way of salvation and his name is jesus he is saying to these scribes and pharisees that salvation entrance into the fold of god isn't because you're righteous or at least you think you're righteous it isn't because you think you're a good person and you know all the laws and and you do all the crazy stuff that you're that you're doing that isn't entrance into God's kingdom it isn't because you're Jewish it isn't because you can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham it isn't any of those things it is through me and if you will not enter through me then you will not enter and if you cannot enter the promises that belong to the fold of God and God being their shepherd are not your promises we can claim whatever we want to and I say that very 
carefully. We can claim whatever we want to, but if we do not enter in through Jesus Christ and him alone, then the promises the Bible gives us of life, everlasting life, and heaven and all the other things that God has promised to us in his word are not ours. There's only one entrance into such great promises and confidence, and that is in Jesus himself. We must go through him. It is in him that this is extended to us. Notice what he says here. Verse number eight, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. Now, what would you do if you're sitting there and you've already rejected Jesus? As a Pharisee and the scribes had done, and he says to them that if you will not come by me, you will not come at all. You cannot come at all. There's two beautiful realities of this. That is, there's a door of salvation, a gate, entrance into the fellowship and the kingdom of God. But there's also the reality of the terms in which Jesus sets. The gate is narrow. You cannot bring your self-righteousness. And you cannot bring your faith in self and your faith in works and your faith in, in all this other stuff. It must be in Christ and Christ alone while it may be a rebuke to the people of his day it is a reminder and a sharp rebuke to us because by very nature we want to shore up what jesus did don't we jesus died on the cross to forgive us and and give us new life and and we'll see that more next week. And, and, and that's great. Put faith in Jesus. But we want to shore that up by, by bringing with us something else just in case it doesn't work. Kind of like Rachel who stole her dad's idol though she was going to the promised land. Just in case it might help her along the way. Jacob's wife. You can look at that in the book of Genesis. But that will not be allowed. We come. We come to Christ. We come to him. And put our faith and trust in him alone. But notice the promise that he says here to us. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. <clears throat> I like what he says there. He doesn't say if a good man will enter by me, he will be saved. Does he? Is, I don't know what your translation says. Mine doesn't say that. It doesn't say if a pious man will enter in, he will be saved. He doesn't say if a moral man, a poor man, a bad man, a rich man, a, a whatever kind of man, or a man only, enter in by me, he will be saved. But he says, if any man, if anyone enters in by me, he will be saved. Why does he say that? Well, he says that for us. Because you and I, like to feel like we're the exception to the rule, don't we? We like to think, well, this is good and this is true, this is wonderful, but some people merit salvation more than other people. Some people are more lined up and more inclined uh, uh, to go that way or worthy of it more than that. And the Bible says, no, if any man come by me, he shall be saved. Whatever station of life, whatever season of life, whatever baggage that you've had, whatever it may be, if any man come by him, he may be saved. There is no other way. 
you may be saved. Notice that promise he gives twofold here, really three, but twofold. One is that they that come in by him will be saved. Well, they will have protection. We'll see that next week. They will have deliverance from the enemy and all of that that he provides for them. They will be kept from abuse of the wild animals and and, and the sense of the thieves and robbers. Saved just simply means delivered from danger. Isn't that remarkable? We used to use that all the time. You'd go out witnessing or, or soul winning, as they called it, some places. And then you may not have heard that. I don't know. But anyway, you go out and you talk to people and you ask them that question, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you born again? We used to use that language. We don't use that so much anymore, I guess. And have you been saved? And some outside who's not familiar with that inside language or lingua may be like, what in the world are you talking about? Saved from what? Well, in one sense, we're saved from disaster, from judgment, from the wrath of God. Now, the fact that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and God has appointed a fixed day that one day we'll all give an account for what we've done in this flesh and in our bodies and, and for the fact that we have sinned against him and what he has promised us in Jesus is deliverance on that day of judgment. In fact, he said earlier in John, he says, I came and those who believe in him will not will not be condemned on the day of judgment. Delivered from danger and given life. Christ comes, that great shepherd comes, that we may be saved, delivered from danger and given life. And that's what you see in the second part of that statement. Not only will they be saved, but they will go in and out and find pasture. It's like summing up the totality of life, isn't it? The ups and downs of in and out, the back and forth. And he's saying that he will continually keep and care for his sheep. The ongoing care of the shepherd. And really in the sense of that which you and I have been looking for. That satisfaction, that deep fellowship with the father and with the son. That is found in this image of given, been, or of being given good pastures. Verse number 9. It just reminds me to even ask you as I ask my own self, has God been faithful to you, church? Christian, as you come this morning and, 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 the, and the years and the miles that you've traveled throughout this life, has Christ ever lost you? Has God ever forsaken you or neglected you? Has he not always provided in his time and in his way out of the riches of his resources? The faithfulness of the father as he commits himself to us as a father or the shepherd as he commits himself to us as a shepherd and the, and the relationship as a sheep and that care that he gives for us. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life and fellowship with God. No wonder we love Psalms 23. We already alluded to it, didn't we? The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And he goes through that list of that Psalms, all the ways the shepherd cares for me. And Jesus is simply saying those who come through me not only find salvation, will find that Psalms 23 kind of care continually because they are his sheep and he is their shepherd. It is to counter the lies in verse number 10 of the promise of the fullness of life. Notice with me, 10. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Isn't that the world's message? A satisfying life, a fulfilled life, is to do whatever you want to do. It is to pursue your passions and, 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 and at any cost. It is to experience life in all of its fullness, if we could say it that way, at the expense of being in relationship to God. What Jesus is saying is quite the opposite. A full life, a satisfying life, a purposeful life, a, a, a life with meaning and substance is one who is, is found belonging in the fold of God and who has a shepherd like this, Jesus. I would just encourage you, some of you young people, as you consider what is the good life, to sit down with some of the older people in our church and ask them, really, what is the purpose? What is the meaning of life? What does all this matter? You know, it's one thing we experience happiness in this world. God has graced us with that. I think that's his general goodness and kindness to humanity, his grace. We also know all of those things that give us happiness are also some of the very things that bring emptiness and heartbreak. We won't get out of that because we live in a world that is cursed but sometimes we, we have heard and maybe we have thought, maybe you have thought that Christianity has come to snuff out life. <laughs> to be like a, an anchor to your joy and whatever. You know, we, we come to Christ, we, we have to give up stuff like bitterness or anger or pride, or self-reliance. Let me just ask you, is that a bad thing? I think what Jesus says here at the end of verse number 10 is so, uh, so important to remind ourselves of as he has come, not to snuff out life, but to give us life. Notice, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, sufficiently, Fully, that we might be satisfied, not free of trials and hardships. I'm not preaching a gospel like that, but joyful, purposeful, love, satisfying with relentless hope. Christ came that we might have an abundant, full life. And what the world promises is life and satisfaction and fulfillment. And all they can offer you is death. What Jesus has come to do is come to restore us unto himself. And in restoring us unto himself, he gives us all these great gifts of joy and purpose and love and satisfaction and hope. That we might not just merely exist, but that we may exist. I just like that relentless hope exists with an abundant life with that bow with me for a word of prayer father we thank you for this morning that we gather together thank you for your good grace to us providing for us a good shepherd father that he is the door into the blessings and promises that we long for that we we want you have offered to us 
through your Son, Jesus Christ. That's why he came into the world. Father, I pray if anyone here does not know you, is not walking, or has not experienced that abundant life, that even now that they would come, lay aside themselves, their pride, their self-sufficiency, whatever it is, and that they would cling wholly and fully to Christ and his, his grace, that they would enter in through that door. Would you do that even among us this morning, that we may rejoice that our great Savior is magnified and another one confessing him Lord for your glory. And Lord, I pray for the Christians here this morning as we have gathered together that you would just comfort us, a reminder of your care for us in whatever season we're in, just a good, a good word of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.